This is what we like to call Torah studies. Now, the reason why we call this Torah studies, right? This is called Torah studies. The reason is because we study Torah. I know. We could have come up with maybe a more creative... I know, I know, I know what you're thinking. It's like, where's the mystery? Where's the intrigue? It's not about the mystery and the intrigue in the name. It's about the mystery and intrigue in the class. Today, we focus on the Torah portion of Yisro, or Yitro, or Jethro, although I don't think anybody calls it that. Yitro is a portion in the book of Exodus, and it is a significant portion because, as we'll see soon, it talks about a pretty significant event in history. But first, we have to do the ceremonial cracking open of the seltzer. So, I will take care of that on my end. And Lamayim. Okay, so, it's got, you can't drink it right away because too many bubbles. Huh? It's not Mayim. What is it? It's seltzer. All right, let's seltzer. Eh, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work as well. So, if you and I had to talk about or define or characterize or depict Judaism. Yeah, did see the sounds. Um, if you had to depict Judaism, you and I might say that Judaism is marked by ritual and rote and structure and a certain formula, right? It's got its protocols, its laws, its customs, traditions, it has, Judaism has a box. That's what you and I would say before coming to tonight's class. Because tonight, we are going to learn that Judaism is less about rote and more about being radical. You see what I did there? It's not about the rote, it's about the radical. Radical Judaism is the name of the game. I don't know what game we're talking about, but it's, it's, that is what Judaism is all about. It's about being radical. It's about thinking radical. It's about yearning in radical ways. And tonight, we learn about one such radical. And this guy's name, this fellow's name, this radical's name was, you guessed it, if you've been paying attention to the name of the Torah portion, you already have the answer. His name was Yisro, or Yitro, or Jethro. He was, I I'm not going to say he was the first radical, but he was a radical's radical. Like, even the radicals would say about him, you're radical. And by the way, when I say radical, and I'm saying it a lot, Right? And it's not getting to stop tonight. When, <laughs> when I say radical, I don't mean in the, you know, Australian uh, um, tur uh, sea turtle in Finding Nemo, radical dude, like that radical. I mean, but also could be that radical. I mean the radical, like radical, radical. You with me? So, what's the point? <laughs> You're probably wondering. Here's the premise of tonight's class. Judaism, less rote, more radical. Even if sometimes it seems like there's a lot of structure at its heart, Judaism is all about being radical. Let's jump in. Our Torah portion opens. Set the scene. Two million people in the desert, in the wilderness, 
a band of slaves having been freed from Egypt, having traversed the sea and made it uh, and, and safely having crossed to the other side or at least to an other side, is now journeying in the desert. And who arrives in middle of this landscape, this, this open landscape, none other than the father-in-law of Moses. His name was, you guessed it, Yitro. He comes along with his daughter, Moshe's wife, and Moshe's two kids. They join the party in the desert. Let's read the verse, the opening verses of this week's Torah portion that introduces us to this man who we are going to get to know very well tonight, this man named Yitro. I'm going to share my screen with you because as you know, as always, sharing is caring. Why can't I not... All right, I'm having a little bit of uh, Zoom challenges, but... We're going to try this. Let me know what you can see, if you can see. Can you guys see that? Can you get, do you guys, okay, hold on. Someone's got to unmute yourself. Um, can you see Torah Studies text one? It looks like kind of like a PowerPoint Hebrew and English. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. It's working. Now, I'm going to try to make this as big as possible without going into a different type of view. So I just, I don't want to rock the boat here. The, the technology is a little bit wonky tonight. Who knows why? It doesn't matter why. We're, we're, we're going to make it work. Okay, that's how we roll. Be radical, Rabbi. We, yes, we are being radical. Some weeks we get a PDF. Some weeks we get, a, we get a PowerPoint. We are radical. We are going to embrace it. All right, you know what, Dr. Maxi? Might as well, if you don't mind, jump in. Text number one, opening verses of our parsha talks about this epic meeting, Yitro, Jethro meets the Jewish people, Moses, etc., in the desert. Please take it away. Now Moses' father-in-law, Yitro, the Kohen of Midian, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, and that God had taken Israel out of Egypt. Now Moses' father-in-law, Yitro, and his, Moses' sons, and his wife came to Moses to the desert where he was encamped to the mountain of God. Moses told his father-in-law about all that God had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians on account of Israel, about all the hardships that had befallen them on the way and that God had saved them. Yitro was happy about all the good that God had done for Israel, that he had rescued them from the hands of the Egyptians. Thereupon, Yitro said, Blessed is God, who has rescued you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of Pharaoh, and who has rescued the people from beneath the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that God is greater than all the deities, for with the thing that they plotted, he came upon them. Then Moses' father-in-law, Yitro, sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings to God and Aaron, and all the elders of Israel came to dine with Moses' father-in-law before God. Perfect. Thank you. It was a long reading, but I hope the message is simple and straightforward and it came across okay. Here's the bottom line. Yitro is joining the party in the desert. He's joining the Jewish people. He's joining Moses. 
and and they all dine to the last verse. They're all dining together, and it is a kumbaya. Now we need to understand before we go any further, because tonight we are taking a deep dive into the life and times of Yitro. We need to understand a little bit more about who was who was this man. What was he really about? And what is the significance of him uh, meeting up with the Jewish people? I am going to advance this screen to text number two and ask David. David, please read. Please unmute and please... Uh, oh, what just happened to my screen? I don't even know. And please read text number two from the Mechilta. He was a priest. Rabbi says he was a minister. Thank you. And by the way, what's what's interesting is in English, a priest and a minister can almost sound like the same thing, but in the Hebrew it means actually something else. I need to explain. The Torah says that he was a kohen midjan. The question is, what does that mean? Midjan is a place, but what does it mean? He was a kohen of midjan. So one rabbi says in the Medrash, it means he was a Kohen. It means he was a, a priest. Not a Jewish priest, but a priest of uh, other worship. Another opinion says, Sar Haya. He was a Sar. Sar means like a minister or a, not like a religious minister, but like a, an officer, minister, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Like um, a high-ranking uh, political officer, a political official. Like a prime minister? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Like, like a political uh, um, position. Now, the commentaries on the Medrash understand that, the, that Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Eliezer are not actually factually disagreeing. In other words, he was both, Yitro was both a religious figure a religious leader, and a political leader in Midian. The only question is, the word Kohen here, is it referring to his religious position or his political position? But one thing is sure, and that is that he was a very connected individual. He was a prominent individual, spiritual leader, as well as a political figure that was very well known in his hometown or home country of Midian. He picks up, he leaves home, and he joins the Jewish people in the desert. Take a look at text number three, where our sages tell us that he didn't just meet up and, 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 and have, uh, you know, and, and, and wine and dine, but he actually joined up to convert to Judaism. Take a look at text number three. Uh, let's ask... Susan, Susan, are you up to reading text number three? This is from Rashi on our parsha. Don't forget to unmute. Yes, you got it. Okay. Yitro, he was called by seven names. Ruel, Yeter, Yitro, Obab, Heter, Hanai, and Kutiel. He was called oh, Yeter because he caused a section to be added to the Torah, namely, but you shall choose. He was called Yitro to indicate that when he converted and fulfilled the commandments, a letter was added to his name. He was called Hovav, which means lover, because he loved. The 
He loved the Torah. Hovav was indeed Yitro, as it is said, of the children of oh, Hovav, Moses' father-in-law. Thank you. Thank you. So what, comes, what emerges from this Rashi, and we're not, we, and if you notice, we're not focusing on all the seven names that he had. He had a bunch of different names that, he was, that he's referred to. But we're focusing on three of the names, Yeter, Yitro, and Chovav. Basically, Yeter means because of him, we have, an, we have a, a dis- conversa- an extra conversation, an extra section in Torah. Yeter means, Yeter means addition. There was an added-on section of Torah about him. Yitro, because he... Fulfilled, he has an extra letter because he, sorry, he, he converted and fulfilled the commandments. And Chovav, because he loved, he loved the Torah, which is the idea of, of, of Chibab, of, of uh, Chib, actually, it should be Chiba, no? But Chiba is love. Either way, it's a, for, it's, it's, a, it's a word that means love. He loved the Torah. What's clear from this, and I'm going to stop sharing because I feel like I've put this, uh, this up for a little while already, um, and I'd like to see everyone's faces. What's clear is Yitro joins the people. He meets with them. He is converting to Judaism, and who is he? He's a chash of a guy. He's a, he's a prominent figure back, back home, and here he is converting to Judaism. Now, there are two major... Let, let's, let's pause this discussion for a moment, and I want to give you a bit of a bigger picture, then we're going to come back to the story. There are two major um, storylines in this week's Torah portion. Storyline number one is Yitro joining up with the people and converting and joining the fold. That's the opening of the, of the Torah portion. That's the first major narrative um, storyline in our parsha called Yitro. The second major storyline is Divine revelation at Sinai, Ten Commandments, giving of the Torah. That's the big deal in this week's Torah portion. Yes, you heard it right. You heard it here first. Well, maybe not first. But this week's Torah portion is where the Ten Commandments are first recorded. This Torah portion tells us about the Jewish people gathering at Mount Sinai. It talks about the Jewish people standing in awe and hearing God's voice. Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am the Lord your God. That happens in this week's Torah portion. So two storylines. Yitro joining the fold and the Torah being given. Now, there are no mistakes in Torah. There are no accidents in Torah. There are no accidental juxtapositions in Torah. If a single portion has a few different stories... You guessed it, there's got to be a thematic connection or a relationship between the two stories. If our Torah portion, which is called Yitro, talks about Yitro joining the Jewish people and then segues to the Torah being given, you better believe that there must be some connection be- Oh, hey. between... Second. Ta-da! Say hi. So you better believe that there is a connection between Yitro and the Torah being given. But don't take my word for it. Let's look at what the Zohar says. The Zohar, primary work of Kabbalah, 
says this in beautiful mystical language. I am going to share my screen. One second, let me pull up the right thing and then attempt to share my screen. All right, give me a second here. Looks like we got the right screen share. Um, text number, nope, text number four from the Zohar. Okay, let's see who are we going to ask to read. Um, Steve, will you please read text number four on mute and take it away, please. Yethro, the greatest of all pagan priests, arrived and swore fealty to God, stating, Now I know that God is greater than all the deities. At that moment, God's glory was resplendent in both the greatest heights and the lowest realms. Thereafter, God gave a perfect Torah that reigned supreme over all of us. Thank you. So take a look at what the Zohar is saying. The Zohar connects the two narratives. It says, first... Yitro comes, and he was the greatest of all the pagan priests. He was the biggest religious leader of the time, not Jewish religious leader of the time. And he says, And now I know that Hashem, God, God's, God is the greatest of any other so-called God or deity. And then, and that caused the great Kiddush Hashem, that caused the great sanctification of God's name. And afterwards, God gave the Torah what, what I'm trying to bring out is that from the Zohar, it's clear that there's a connection between the two narratives. First, Yitro comes, and then the Torah can be given. This evokes our central opening question. Our central and really our, our yeah, our only opening question is simply this. Makesha, what's the connection? What's the connection between Yitro and Torah? That Yitro joins and then the Torah can be given. It almost sounds like the Torah could not have been given had Yitro not joined the fold. Or that Yitro's joining the fold is somehow a catalyst, a necessary catalyst, a necessary condition for Torah to be given. We need to understand what is the thematic connection. I want to recap everything we've done until now in about 20 seconds. Number one, I made a statement. Judaism is less rote and more radical than we sometimes think. Point number two, Yitro was a tremendous leader who joins the Jewish people. And then in our portion, we read about the Torah being given. There must be a connection between them. And our there must be a connection. And our question is, what's that connection? That should bring you up to speed of everything that we discussed until now. Which takes us to a completely, seemingly, unrelated topic. You know me by now. You know these classes. You know how we like to, you know, in our act two, kind of veer off track, allegedly, and then magically tie everything back together in an incredible twist that you didn't see coming so that we wrap it up in thrilling fashion. You know how this works. We're following the formula tonight. Same formula, new topic. It's going to be thrilling. Buckle up, folks. Oh, I need an extra belt for the young lady. Okay, we'll get you secured. Are you on board? Yes? You're on board the Torah Studies train? Let's party. Okay, 
Unrelated topic. Sure, it's unrelated. Don't worry. It's <laughs> okay. It's not. It's not unrelated. But it seems unrelated. Let's get into it. All right. Do you know the concept? Oh, hey there. Um, everybody familiar with the concept of personal space? Yeah, the idea of personal space. How would you, anybody, unmute yourself. How would you define personal space? What does it mean to you, personal space? Anybody, jump right in. Personal space, what does that mean? Being left alone. Okay, good, being left alone. What else? Personal space. Somebody says, um, you know, you're in my personal, like, what, what is personal space? Comfort zone. Comfort zone, good. What else? It's an invisible border about this far from you. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so you're standing there, and someone's having someone's having a conversation with you, right? And this is really open for everybody. Um, so, and then somebody is getting like super yeah. close in your in your space, right? You ever have that situation where somebody is like really like in your? That's that's what we mean by you know. There's a comfort zone. But here's the question. Reva, you want to get into the comfort zone of everybody? No? Okay. So that's what a, you know, that's one understanding of comfort zone. You know, safe spaces. We like to have, oh, you like that when I went safe spaces? All right. Safe spaces. But, and, and when, when people are too close, it's like comfort zone. You know, we live in a world now where comfort zones has become, have become all the rage. Right? We call it social we call it social distancing, and it's, um, it's about maintaining our distance from each other, right? You get too close, it's like, whoa, slow down, cowboy. This is my, this is my space. This is my, uh, this is my comfort zone. You're getting a little too close for comfort. I got my yardstick, and, and I'm going to you know, poke anybody that gets a little bit too close here. I got, I got my, uh, my Doppler radar. I don't know if that's... I don't know if that still exists, but I got my, uh, my little radar thing, and, and, and you know, everyone kind of stay outside that perimeter because we got to stay socially, uh, socially safe, socially distanced. In, in our society, there is no definitive... You come with sound effects. I love that. There is no definitive notion, nor is there a law regarding personal space. However, you guessed it, in Judaism, there is a notion, a real notion and standard of personal space that even has legal ramifications. This will blow your mind. Not only will the concept blow your mind, but the distance will blow your mind. Judaism says, you know what? Let's look at the source, my friends. Let's look at the source. I am pulling it up and sharing my screen. Tonight it's taking a little bit, of, a, few, a few extra steps, but that's the way it is. That is the way it is, hold on. <sighs> yeah, I know, you and me both. Okay, here we go, text number five. Text number five. Um, Donna Bogatin, please read. Donna, please read this text number five. Take a look at this one. Don't forget to unmute and jump right in. For Ahmad, 
or cubits surrounding a person are considered his or her personal space. Look at that right there. Jewish literature, Jewish legal literature says the four amot, the four cubits surrounding a person are his or her personal space. You cannot make this up. This is a teaching that goes back thousands of years. How, how, what is the distance of four amot to four cubits? What do you think? Each cubit, I'm going to make the math easy, each cubit is about a foot and a half. How far, how, 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 what distance is four amot? Six feet. Six feet, my friends. Six feet is considered personal space. This is not only a classic Jewish teaching, this is also a halachic teaching. It has halachic ramifications. It has Jewish legal ramifications. First and foremost, and again, this is mind-blowing, halacha says the following. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase a, a, complica- a complex topic and hopefully um, make it very simple. Jewish law says that there are different ways by which a person can acquire property. In other words, what triggers a property transfer from one party to another party? And when I say party, I mean people, not like, like happy birthday party, right? So what transfers property from one party, now you're thinking about a party, to another party? It is, there are certain triggers, right? Different forms of triggers. One of those forms of acquisition is called Kenyan Chatzar. Kenyan Chatzar means your property acquires on your behalf. Let me explain. You have a home and you have a yard and your yard is fenced in and secured. Let's say it has... Hello. Hello. Let's say it has a lock on the fence. You have a secured yard. Let's say, all right, I'm going to give you a scenario. Let's say something falls in your yard. Somehow some abandoned property ends up in your yard. Halacha says, Jewish law says, aside from the issue of trespassing, Right? No one is allowed to come into your secured property and take that abandoned item, right? Because the moment it lands in your secured property space, it becomes yours. You might not even be home, but it becomes yours. How did it become yours? You didn't see it, you didn't touch it, you didn't lift it, you didn't take it into your house, you didn't do there was no interaction that you had with it. So how does it become yours? This is called Kenyan Chatzar, which means acquiring by virtue of your property, of your, of your land, of your secured property. In other words, when I say property, I mean like your like real estate property. Your property, your land, your chatzar, your yard, is acquiring an item in it on your behalf. Again, if it's secured and whatever, if you have an open if you have an open uh, yard and something runs through, it doesn't mean the second it touches your, your yard, oh, it's mine. No one else can touch it. it it's, if it's secured and it's stationary, there's some qualifications to it, but that is the, the core idea. Does that make sense what I just said? Yes? Thumbs up to what I just said? So something's in your property or in your yard that's secured, right? So it's yours. 
Okay, this is extended rabbinically to your four amot, to your four cubits, to your six feet, to your personal space. Halach, Judaism says that every person has essentially four cubits, six feet or so of space that is their personal space. Now, you might be thinking, what about a crowded subway? Does everyone, if everyone has six feet, then, then my six feet is in your six feet. Good question. Let's leave that for a second. But in a, in a, in a scenario where everyone has kind of space, ev- there, there is a perimeter, if you will, around each person, le- Jewish legally, that is considered to be their space, which means, let me, let me give you the, 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 the idea here. Without a fence. It's like an invisible fence. Uh-huh. Right? It's like an invisible um, border around each person, six feet. If something is in your four amot range, abandoned property, that's someone else's stuff, right? Abandoned property, ready for the picking, ready for the taking, Jewish law says it is it belongs to you even without you picking it up and touching it, which means that no one else can quickly swoop in and grab it. Does that make sense what I just said? Yes? It becomes yours by virtue of it being in your space. And now I'm going to share this idea with you in the original. Okay, I'm going to read this. It's a bit of a longer text. Let's pull it up. And let's see how this is articulated. Um... Okay, here we go. I'm not going to read all of it. I'm going to read the first little bit. Let's jump in. A person's courtyard can acquire property for him without his being aware of it. This is referring to the courtyard. That was the first law that I told you. Not the four cubits. This is your literal yard that's fenced in. Thus, if a lost object falls into a person's courtyard, he acquires it. Similarly, and this is the, the the point that's related to our conversation directly, the area... Within a, radi- within a radius of four cubits next to the place where a person is standing can acquire property for him like his own courtyard. If a lost object comes into these four cubits, he acquires it. Our sages ordain this convention so that people who discover lost articles should not come to strife. That last line is super powerful and super important. The rationale for this is that we want to make sure that people are not going to be diving after lost property. Think about Black Friday deals. Yeah? Think about that, where everyone is diving right over shopping carts and piles of flat screen TVs. We've all seen the footage, right? Yes? We've all seen the footage. Yeah? It's out of control. I'm not saying that this would work for that, for private property. But it does work in certain cases where you're, and again, I'm not suggesting that this would work for shopping, that, oh, I, it's in my vicinity, you can't, you can't grab it first. But in certain situations, halacha prescribes that if it's in your vicinity, you have a legal ownership stake in it, or you have a claim to it at least, legally ownership. If you don't want it, you don't want it, but you have the first rights to it, and therefore no one can dive in and grab it before. What's the point? The point is that everybody has personal space and there is a halachic, there is a halachic meaning to this. It has a halachic, a Jewish legal 
um, ramification in that you can acquire in that property. Okay, so that's point number one. Point number two, yes. Um, 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 this, um, they got the, the stuff so they can touch it and they touched it. Right. You can, you can take it and no one else can jump in and touch it. So that's one area in halacha where it is, where this, where this teaching is manifest. Again, we have a teaching of personal space, which is about four amos, which is about six feet or so. That has legal ramifications regarding acquisition. I'm going to give you a bunch of different, a, a, a bunch more examples or scenarios where this uh, um, has halakhic ramifications. Number two, second scenario, with regards to kedushin, which is betrothal. So halacha says that betrothal, kedushin, like marriage betrothal, um, not the way we do weddings today. Jewish weddings have both both kedushin and nisuyin which is betrothal and the marriage under the chuppah, both, both stages take place at the same time. Without getting into the details, betrothal is essentially when the husband, or, the, or not husband yet, but the, the groom gives something of monetary value to the bride, right? So halacha says that what happens if the groom, and I, I don't, I'm not suggesting that anybody try this or do this, but when, when is it considered as if the groom has given something to the bride? So we know, obviously, if you, you give the bride um, a ring or something of value and put it on her finger, okay, that's certainly considered giving. But is there other, other forms of giving? The answer is yes, and probably by now you know what halacha would say. As long as it is delivered within four cubits of her, and she consents to it, obviously, can't just throw something in someone's vicinity. Mazel tov, right? I mean, that's, you've you got to have uh, two parties and consent on, on, and, and a willingness to receive on both, on both sides or, or on the, the side of the, the, the bride in this case. But if that consent is there, even if it doesn't yet reach your hand, it's considered to be given and there is kedushin, betrothal that happens. The same thing is true with a get, with a divorce document. Divorce, a Jewish divorce is triggered by the delivery of the document from the husband to the wife, that triggers the divorce. It's called a get. And in Hebrew, it's called a get. The get happens when it reaches her hand or when the get is delivered within her four amos, her six feet, within her personal space. Again, we see here that there's a halachic consideration of these uh, halachic um, significance to these four cubits that constitute a person's space. There are, there are more laws regarding the four cubits, regarding Shabbat, a topic that we spoke about last week, about Tchum Shabbos, where that we have 2,000 amos, 2,000 cubits, out of the city that we're allowed to walk. Well, what happens if somebody was traveling for some reason on Shabbat and whatever, somehow finds themselves on Shabbat by mistake or whatever, outside the 2,000 ama limit outside the city. So you can't go back into the city because once you're out, you're out. And you can't keep on walking because you're already past the 2,000 ama boundary. So what do you do? You have to stay in your place. Well, does that mean you can't move at all? No, you can stay in your personal space, which is how much? You guessed it, for ama. You have those six feet. You draw a circle or draw a box and you can move around in that area. You can't go past that, but you have your space. Again, Jew Judaism, Jewish law, considers that every person has a space, personal space, and there are legal 
ramifications and repercussions of that space. Let me recap some of them that we spoke about. You can acquire things that fall in that space. You can betroth or divorce with a document or something of value that enters that space. On Shabbat, you can walk within, if you're, if you're in no man's land and you're not supposed to travel, you can still walk and travel within your space. Um, another area of law. Oh, it says when somebody is davening, when somebody is praying. So we're not meant to interrupt someone else who's praying. So we're meant to kind of walk around them to give them their space. How much is their space? You guessed it. For Amma. Now, I understand if you're in a crowded synagogue, bumper to bumper, so, you know, pre-COVID times, you're not going to be able to give somebody the four Amas, and it's just a pragmatic thing. But if you can, the ideal is you give somebody their space, you don't sit down in front of them, you don't walk around in front of them, you want to give them their space to concentrate. And again, what is the halachic definition of personal space for ama, which according to many opinions is literally exactly six feet, a foot and a half per ama, six feet. So this and these laws and many other laws point to the same truth that is that our space is our space and it carries a lot of significance. Now you might be wondering, you might be wondering, where do we get the number of four cubits or four amas from? What's, what's the four amas? Where does the six feet or so come from? Where does that come from? Where does, where, who made up that number? I'm glad you asked because this will take us to the most incredible insight, to the absolutely most incredible insight that you will hear tonight. I am going to find the right piece to share with you. And I have it right here, ready to go, and I'm going to share it with you. Again, I just want to quickly recap of where, where we are and how we got here. We're talking about four amas of space. Personal space in Judaism is defined as four amas, which is about six feet. It has, it's not just a theory, oh, give, give a person their space, but in halacha, your space matters. Your space means something. My question now is, where, we, where, where did we get that number from, this four, four ama, six feet or so? Where did that calculation come from? I'm going to share my screen with you, and we're going to pull up the original source. This is from the Talmud Tractate Erevin. I am going to read this text. Take a look. Take a look at this text. Let's do it together. What is, this? the Talmud asks, what is the scriptural source, the biblical source, For the four amot, within which a person is always permitted to walk on Shabbat. I mentioned this before. If you're outside the Tchum, you're outside the Shabbos boundaries, you still have your personal space, your four amot to walk. But what's the source for that? The answer is, as it was taught, the verse states, we actually read this last week, that every, remain every man in his place, let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. Meaning, one must restrict movement to an area equal to his place. So you can't leave your place, but within your place, you can walk. So even if you're outside the border, you still have your place to walk. And how much is the area of his place? How much space is ours, personal space, defined in Judaism? Here it's defined. I told you the number, but here's where it comes from. 
Says the Talmud, a body typically measures three amot. And an additional amma is needed to allow him to spread out his hands and feet. This is the statement of Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Yehuda says a person's body measures three amot, and an additional amma is needed in order to allow him to pick up an object from under his feet and place it by his head. Both opinions are essentially saying the same thing, and I'm going to break it down very clearly. The Talmud says, three amma, four amma total your space. Where does that number come from? Three ammas is from head to toe. And the fourth amma is when you're stretching your hands. Imagine lying down on the ground. You can lie down in a curled up position. You can lie down in a head to toe position, stretched out, or you can make, like they're doing in New York, a snow angel and extend your arms and legs. And the Talmud says that the four amas come from not the body itself with the head, torso, and legs. Four is when we stretch out our arms. You might be thinking six feet when you stretch your arms. Yeah, you know, Jews, you know, a little bit on the, uh, on the more petite side. All right, I'm just saying. Right, so not all Jews, I know, I get it, fine, I'm just saying. So we have here three amas, head to toe, the fourth is when you stretch your arm. That's what the Talmud says. I'm going to ask you a question, it's a klutz kasha, it's such an obvious question. If we're talking about personal space, yeah, defining how much space is personal space, why are we stretching the arms? What do we do? Is this like when, when you were a kid and you're trying to get on the roller coaster and it had a thing and you were on your tippy toes? Look, I'm tall enough. What, what, what is this? Why are we stretching our arms to, to, to measure personal space? Personal space should be the height, the average height of a person, to head to toe. What's the business of stretching your arms? Yeah? Speaking of roller coasters, that's what you do on a roller coaster. Why are we going roller coaster mode, right? Ah, six flags. Oh, raise your hand. What's going on here? I want to share with you an answer that the Rebbe gave that will blow your roller coaster off its tracks. Don't worry, no one was harmed in the creation of this Dvar Torah. But the Rebbe says the head represents intellect, the torso represents emotions, the feet represent action. For those of you that were at the class last night, Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama, action, emotions, and intellect. And you might think that those three dimensions, those three amos, comprise the entirety of the person. Says the Rebbe, there's also one more ama, one more dimension, and that is stretching beyond what is rational. Stretching beyond what you think is possible. That is part of the definition of the human being, the ability to stretch beyond the, the, the rational, beyond the logical, beyond the, that which is calculated. According to Judaism, what is our personal space? It's our head, it's our heart, it's our actions, and it's also our transcendence. The part of us that can be Radical, which means that a human being is defined as the ability to do, feel, think, and 
break out, break out of the box, be radical. That is part of the definition and the space of the human being. By the Talmud defining the space of the human being as not just three amas, but four amas, which include the space that we stretch beyond our heads, that comes to tell us that a human being must not remain stuck only in the things that we understand, but we have to sometimes break out and be radical, do something radical, something super rational, something beyond what can be measured and understood just because it's the right thing to do. This is what defines a human being and makes us so incredibly powerful. I'm going to share with you this text from the Rebbe's teachings where I just, what I just paraphrased. I'm going to share it with you so that you can see it inside the text for yourself. Text number 12, I'm going to read this. The Rebbe says, Naturally, a person takes up the space of three amot, corresponding to the three umbrella parts of the body, namely the head, torso, and legs. According to the rules of creation, in other words, natural law, the head is the loftiest part of the person, then the torso, and finally the lowest part, the legs. In this scheme, the hands, which extend out of both sides of the torso, are lower than the head. It is each person's task, says the Rebbe, to reach beyond the three amot designated to humanity at creation, to reach beyond the peak of what a human can actually achieve, namely beyond the head, the seat of reason. In other words, a person should use his or her reason. And instead of getting stuck in the parameters of that very power of reason, break free and engage in matters that are beyond what the head can reach on its own. I'm giving you a simple example now. A person says, you know, it makes sense for me to do this mitzvah, but that other mitzvah, you know, it's not for me or I'm not ready for it. That's the head. Comes along this teaching and says, a human being is not limited to the head. That's not our, our, the extent of our height because you and I are not given in halacha just three amot. We're given four. And what's the fourth four? To reach beyond to not be stuck in the cup. The cup, the head, cup is head in Yiddish. The cup, the head is powerful and it's wonderful and it can open up, you know, wonderful opportunities for us. But you and I know, you and I know, I don't need to tell you. You can tell me. Everyone can tell each other about in how in our experience, in our lives, how our heads got in the way of what we needed to do. How we knew that we needed to do something, that we should do something, but we were too afraid to do it. We paralysis by analysis, that our heads got in the way of our progress and our destiny. You and I know the dangers of only following our minds and not being able to say sometimes, not always, but sometimes, not now. Now it's time to reach beyond and just go for what is the potential to what this situation calls for. The Rebbe says clearly that it is in the mandate of the human being to not be limited by the head. The head is not the roof of our existence. Our arms, thank God, are, were created that we can stretch beyond. The physical anatomy, the physical biology teaches us an important lesson about what we are meant to do. Not be stuck solely by the head 
and by logic and by rationale, but be able to break out when the situation calls for it. When, when our spiritual growth is hanging in the balance, we're called upon to act radically and not just rationally. Does that make sense? Yes, so far so good? Let's bring it back to Torah and Yitro and our Torah portion and Matan Torah and tie everything together. Give me four more minutes. We have four minutes left. Let's do this. Let's talk about Sinai. So what happened at Sinai? The Torah was given. You might know, you might be familiar with this fact that Torah contains four dimensions of interpretation. Pshat, Remez, Drush, and Sod. The simple meaning, the allegorical meaning, the homiletical meaning, and the mystical meaning. Torah is comprised of four dimensions. Simple meaning, if we want to compare it to our previous analogy of the human being, so there's like the, the, the practical meaning, there's the emotional meaning, there's the intellectual meaning, and then there's the Kabbalah, the mystical meaning. When the Torah was given at Sinai, we were given all four dimensions, all four cubits, four amot of Torah, not just three, but all four. And the Torah calls upon us to not remain stuck in our actions, emotions, or ideas, but to have the courage to also jump in to those uncharted territories, to those undiscovered places, to do a mitzvah that's outside of our comfort zone, and it's specifically Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy, the deeper teachings of Torah that we like to study here at Intown Jewish Academy. It's specifically the deeper insights of Torah that, 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 that um, call upon our soul and challenge us to step beyond the head and the rationale and to do something bold and radical. This is what happened at Sinai. What happened at Sinai is God didn't just give us the Torah as a book of study. Oh, study this interesting book of philosophy, this book of ideas. God gave us a calling and a calling that oftentimes is going to call upon us to challenge our comfort zones and to break beyond that. I saw a beautiful video clip yesterday from Rabbi Dr. Torsky. Rabbi Dr. Torsky was speaking about a lobster. And he said that how does a lobster operate um, with a scalpel? I'm kidding. How does a, how does a lobster work? <laughs> how does a lobster work with its shell? So the lobster has a shell. But at some point it grows. The shell, the lobster is soft, the shell is hard. So what happens? You can't grow if the shell is, is it's hard. You, you can't grow out of it. So what happens is the lobster finds a rock formation. And in that rock formation, it discards the shell. When it feels like it's grow, it feels uncomfortable in the shell, it discards the shell, goes inside the rock formation for the meantime to be protected because it doesn't have the shell anymore. In that space, it grows and develops a new shell until it feels uncomfortable again. It sheds and it grows and it keeps on doing that. Which means that what is the key to the lobster's growth? It's the discomfort that it feels in the limitation of its shell. As Rabbi Dr. Torsky said, 
If lobsters had psychiatrists, he was a psychiatrist, if lobsters had psychiatrists, they would never grow. Because the psychiatrist would say, let me give you medication so you don't feel uncomfortable. You understand what I'm saying? You with me? The feeling uncomfortable leads to the growth. You discard, you feel uncomfortable, you discard the shell, you grow, you develop a new shell, and then you repeat the process. A human being is meant to grow. We're not meant to be limited by our legs and torso and head. We're meant to stretch beyond, to reach beyond. Torah gives us the ability, Kabbalah, Hasidus, gives us the ability to stretch beyond our natural comfort zones. So you're stuck, we're stuck in our heads and we have our ideas and we have our fears and insecurities and then we have our discomforts and Torah says, challenge yourself. Go beyond what you think is possible. Be radical. To get Torah, you needed someone who was radical. Torah, which is radical, needed someone who was radical to do something that is radical to trigger the radical giving of Torah. Who was radical? Yitro. Yitro was a Kohen. He was a minister. He was a priest. He was a well-connected person. And he hears about the Jewish people. He hears about the miracles. And you know what? Most people would say, interesting. Some people would say, wow, I'm very impressed. Some people might say, you know what? I think I'm going to start believing the way they believe. Yitro didn't do any of these. Only he packed his bags and he went out from his cushy job, his cushy place, his cushy home, and he went out into a desert to a ragtag group of former slaves in no man's land. Why? Because he saw truth. And he wasn't afraid to do something that was radical, not rational. If he was thinking with his head, he could have said, from now on, I'm converting to Judaism, but staying here where I'm comfortable. That's not what happened. He left his home. He left his comfort, he left his pension, and he went to the Midbar. He went to the desert. Why? Because he was radical. This Torah portion, Yitro, is all about celebrating the radical. Celebrating Yitro. When Yitro acted in a radical way, demonstrating his commitment to God, commitment to Judaism that made no sense. That was the key. That was the breakthrough, the catalyst for us to get the Torah. God says, oh, we got, some, we got some radicals. Let's give them a radical gift, the radical gift of Torah that's going to challenge human beings for all time to get out of their heads and to reach for the sky. My friends, Judaism is not about rote. Judaism is not about being stuck in the box. That is the greatest lie ever told. Judaism is not a religion. Judaism is not a limitation. Torah tells us, reach for the stars. Reach for the sky. Don't be stuck in your head. We live in a world of limitation. We live in a world where pharaohs and Egypts are conspiring from outside and inside 
to keep us locked in and locked down. Friends, let's study Torah, embrace the Torah's message, reach for a new mitzvah, and indeed be radical. Thank you very much for joining me tonight for Torah study. I hope the message resonated. I hope you appreciated the beauty of the Rebbe's insights and the profound teachings of Torah. And I hope that all of us in our own lives will find one area, one area of positivity, of spirituality, of Judaism, in which we can be just a little bit more radical in a good way. Thank you again for joining me tonight. I'm sticking around. Any questions, comments, loose ends that perhaps didn't get tied up, happy to answer, happy to, uh, to schmooze. Jump in. Did you say that Judaism isn't a religion? Yeah, I did throw that in there. I'm trying to make radical statements. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a religion. It's not a, it's not a belief system. Because a religion, again, it depends how you define religion. I'm defining religion as a belief system. It's not about a belief. It's not about the head. Judaism is about a connection. It's about reaching beyond the possible. It's about reaching beyond human limitations to touch the divine. So, I don't know. Is that a religion? I don't know. I, I don't think it's a religion. It's a, it's a, it's a lifestyle. It's a way to live. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a key to, to unlocking human potential. Is it a religion? I don't know. Again, depends how you define religion. I don't think of it as a conventional religion. Yeah, a conventional religion is you have certain beliefs, right? If you see a Jew on Yom Kippur walking out of services. Oh, you came here to pray? Yeah. You, you prayed services? Yeah. Fasting? Yeah. You believe in God? I'm not sure. <laughs> Why are you here? What do you mean? Because it's Yom Kippur. You see? It's not a belief system. Yeah, we also have those. Yeah, we also throw those in. You know, we have to also, you know, placate the mind also and the heart. And you know, we got we to make, make everybody happy. But at the core, it's not limited to that. There is some of that, but it's not limited. It's not, it's not limited to that. Any other questions, comments? Rabbi, what were the four, you said um, practical, emotional, and I missed the other two. Intellectual, right? So there's, yeah. the, there, there's like the legs would, would indicate practical. The torso, which contains the heart, is emotional. And the head, the third level up, would be the intelligence. And beyond that, though, God gave us hands that could either rest low with the legs in the, in the realm of, pract, of, of, the pract, of action or could stretch even beyond the head. That's the gift of the arms. The arms can move, right, can either be down in the down position or up beyond the head. So the hands stretched above the head represent reaching beyond what we think is possible, right? Breaking outside of the box Challenging the status quo, as I explained before. So the three cubits of, of human dimension, the three standard cubits, are action, emotion, and intelligence. The fourth cubit, which we're all, which we all have, and we're all meant to have, is the ability to reach beyond the head, reach beyond what is just logical. 
It's, it's about, I'm not ready to do this mitzvah. Should I do it? Do it. Even Nike says just do it. Right? Even Nike. Can you imagine? Let alone Yiddishkeit. All right. Questions, comments? Bring it on. What are the four dimensions of Torah? The simple, the... Simple. I'm going to give you words that may or may not mean anything. Um, in English, it's typically translated as, and that's what I said, it's a translation, so who knows. It's um, pshat, which is the simple meaning. Remez, which is the allegorical meaning, um, kind of like the hint, the allegorical meaning. Um, then there's the uh, drush, which is like the medrash, which is the, it's called homiletical. I don't know what homily, I don't, I, don't, I don't know if I can define it. We may have to pull out a Webster's uh, dictionary. But homiletical, and then there's the mystical, the Kabbalah. So the point is that Torah doesn't just have the three dimensions that, you know, that speak to the practical meaning or the emotional meaning or the more intellectual meaning, but it has the soul meaning, the, the, the inner meaning, the deeper meaning, the beyond rational meaning. And it's Kabbalah that gives us the ability, sorry, that, that inspires us to not be stuck in our heads, to reach beyond. And again, just if we're tracing the, the contours of the class, that's what happened at Sinai. We got the gift of being able to break out beyond human limitation. And what was the catalyst for the Torah to be given? One human being who acted exactly in that way, who said, I'm not going to do what makes, I'm not going to do what's normal. I'm not going to do what's logical. I'm just, I'm, that's it. I'm inspired, I'm moved. That's it. I'm packing up and joining them in the desert. Makes no sense. That's the point. That's what he did. Radical. Yitro was a radical. The Torah is radical. We're meant to be radical. Not 24-7. You could be rational also sometimes. But when the moment... And, and don't be... Don't be irrational. Don't be like... Um, irrational to the point of like harm but super rational, right? Radical in a positive way in, in stretching beyond what we think is possible to do something even greater than our self-imposed limitations. I, I just felt like I should probably give that disclaimer, not advocating all reckless behavior as good, but, but when it comes to certainly Torah mitzvot and positive, positive actions, that's what we're talking about in the immediate context. Questions, comments? Susan, uh, sorry, Susan, go ahead. So, uh, sorry, Sarah. So, Rabbi Solish, when you say that that Yitro, the coming of Yitro, because he heard about the splitting of the sea and all all the amazing things that were going on, that the coming of Yitro, that was the catalyst for the giving of the Torah. Yes. So, would you say the, Would you say then the converse would have happened had he not come? What would have happened? I, I, so I don't, I don't know. I can't, I, it's, I can't play that scenario, what if he didn't? I'm just telling you that, no, I, and I really, even before we got to the explanation, I established it based on two fundamental principles. Number one, juxtaposition in Torah is very deliberate. The fact that the Torah portion has two stories and one precedes the other, right? Yitro's arrival, the Torah is given, tells us that the two are connected. And the Zohar says, which we quoted, that Yitro came... He said, Baruch Hashem, God's glory was revealed in the world, and then the Torah was given. 
clearly there's a connection. I understand your question. Well, what if he didn't come? Would the Torah never have been given? How could, it, how could we say it's all about him? I understand the question. But either way, in actuality, this is what happened. He did do something bold and Torah was given. And the lessons we learn from this are tremendous. And that is, be bold. Torah is about being bold. The catalyst, the, the foundation, right? What, 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 what plows the ground to make it fertile for the Torah's giving is a radical act of Yitro in a beautiful way. And that's certainly a powerful message that we can take. I hope that somehow addresses um, your question. Sara, sure. Sara, go ahead. Well, I was thinking that it, it, it's true that since we're being, um, since we're created to reach beyond our limitations, and because Hashem is one of his characteristics, if he can give him characteristics, is that he's unlimited, then when we reach beyond our limitations, then we, that's where, that's the point where we really connect to Hashem. Yes, yes. Perfectly stated. Yes. As lo- let, me, let me say it in maybe the, the opposite side. As long as we're stuck in our heads, who says we're connecting with God? Right? Because God is not an idea. God is beyond rationale. God is beyond logic. Right? God is infinite. So God is beyond limitation. When we act in a way that's beyond limitation, that is the closest we can get. The closest we can get to, to touching the divine. Ex- thank you for, for articulating it that way. It, 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 I think that really emphasizes the point and brings it home. Um, something else came to mind as you were saying that, which I can't recall right now, but maybe it'll come back to me. Yeah, but ex- uh, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, questions, comments? Okay. All right. Yes. I want to say that even the secular world recognizes that you have to break through the um, the, the, the double amos, the four amos, in order to serve a person legal papers. Boom! You've been served. Right. You can't serve them unless you unless you get into their space. There you go. There you go. The world recognizes that. There has to be right. There has so. Yeah, interesting that there's a, there's an even a, 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 maybe a, a secular legal or U.S. legal um, parallel to that idea of personal space meaning something. And again, to be very clear in, in, in how, how we got to that idea of personal space, if you're thinking about the, all the, the steps of this class, we brought up the idea of personal space to then bring up the idea of, well, what is the measurement of personal space, the four qubits, why four, not three, the stretch. That's why we did all of that, to talk about the definition of the human being being the ability to reach beyond. Um, I have one more. It's also interesting that so the, by translating four into six feet, four cubits to six feet, that's what we're using for social distancing. Yes, the, yes, yes. Mom, go ahead. Yeah, I have one more thing. When there was a, there was a when television first started, there was a, a show, the Josie Carey show, and she did little exercises with the children. The first thing she did was she sang a song with them. It was, and she, the children sang along and did the activity, and it was called Bend and Stretch, 
reach for the stars. That's, I mean, the, the rest of the song is, but that was it. You, when you stretch your arms out, and she did that. I love that. That was part of the exercise. You reach for the stars. I love that. I love that. I love that, especially based on, not especially, I mean, based on tonight's class, it evokes this idea that we're, te we're instilling subtly and, you know, through physical movement that we're not stuck. We're not stuck here. We can really reach beyond. On a personal note, I'd like to mention that um, um, it is my birthday tomorrow night. So just want to wish all of you a early, it's, there, there's, a, there's an old tradition that on one's birthday, one has the power to bless. So I know it's about 24 hours before because the birthday starts tomorrow night. Nonetheless, I feel like it's still an, opportun an, op uh, an, op an opportunity to extend to everybody blessings of good health and success and happiness and all of your heart's desires and all of our heart's desires should be fulfilled for the good. We should have many, many, many more opportunities to connect, um, to study together, to inspire each other and to continue to grow beyond our wildest dreams. Thank you for joining me tonight. Thank you, as always, for being part of this learning and growing family. And I appreciate you all. We'll see you guys. Have a wonderful evening. Talk to you soon. Take care. I remember care. it very well. Larry. I can imagine you did. Yes. I can imagine. It was a heat wave. It was a heat wave in Israel. <laughs> for those that don't know, I was born in Israel. All right. We'll see you all. Have a wonderful evening. Lila Tov, good to see you guys. Take care.